Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. Our guest today is Celeste Headley. She is the author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. She is a uh, an NPR journalist. You've heard her all over the radio, but this book is is all about how we are not really making good connections anymore because nobody has in-person communication and how we need to, to scale back all of our phone, text, and email co- communication, how it's really doing damage to our brain. Uh, and basically, she has these days where she completely unplugs, and we're going to talk to her about how she's able to make that work with kids and a job, because I can't make that work. So anyway, that is what we're going to talk to her about. But first, I want to tell you a couple things that we got going on. First and foremost, if you would like to see us live, John is on tour. We are, we are all over the place. Specifically, we're coming to Florida very shortly in November. Uh, you can check that out at teshmusic.com. There is a link to that in the show notes. You can click there and come see us live. There's a lot of shtick and banter like we do uh, on the podcast. But also, you can hear excerpts from John's new book that he's working on. Uh, hear the stories that are going into that book. It, we're kind of touring some of the ideas that he's working on while he's writing the book in person. So you can kind of get like a storyteller's thing from him. So again, check that out, teshmusic.com. Despite the fact that we're going to be talking about the ills of social media, we do connect on social media. So you can find us at facebook.com slash John Tesh, facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. Go ahead and and check us out there. Plus, if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter or uh, have your peppy pet of the week, there are links to where to do that in the show notes. Tesh.com is a great place to start for all this stuff. But without further ado, here is our interview with Celeste Headley. All right, I am here with Celeste Headley. Celeste, thank you so much for being a part of the Intelligence for Your Life podcast. It is my pleasure. Uh, so you've written a book. You've written I have. a book, yeah, called "We Need to Talk," right? And and yes. you admit that those are the four most dreaded words in the English language because I've never been told we need to talk and somebody's like you we're going to give you season tickets to the Dodgers. So I'm glad we had this conversation. Right, Why like, do you think it's so dreaded? Well, I mean, we need to talk. Look, there's only a handful of reasons why somebody says that most of them are not good, right? If your boss comes up to you and says, we need to talk, you immediately think you're going to be fired. Or if your girlfriend says that you immediately think it's over, right? I mean, it's, it usually, we need to talk usually (laughs) means they're about to tell you something horrible. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So that was sort of the irony, right? Like (laughs) an attempt to reclaim those (laughs) words and and make them a little bit less uh, full of doom. Uh, but it has the intended response. I mean, I, I just looking at your book cover gives me kind of a weird <laughs> churning in my stomach because I associate conversation at this point with only negative. Like all, all of my positive interactions are these weird ersatz uh, connections that I have with people uh, via via iMessage or or what have you, like on social media. The negative connections are all in person. Uh, have you noticed you know, that a, issue? You know, it's an odd thing. Okay, so first of all, we are we are evolutionarily designed to to recognize and remember the bad things more than the good. I mean, that's how we're biologically designed, and that's because bad stuff is usually more dangerous than good stuff. Right. And so our brains are set up to really take note of those things. So is it possible that most of your face-to-face conversations were terrible? I guess so. Is it likely? <laughs> no. Right. Right. <laughs> 
most likely most of the conversations you have are pleasant. And in fact, scientifically speaking, most of the conversations you've had have been really good for you neurologically, physiologically, biologically. You know, we're social primates. That means that we are at our healthiest when we are being social. And the problem is, is that um, texting and uh, Skyping when I can't see your face, actually Skyping is okay. Cause I can hear your voice, but right. like Facebook messaging or any of that kind of stuff, we're not set up. Our brains don't recognize that as social interaction. Mm. So we, we don't get a social benefit from them. Okay. I mean, look, I, I absolutely acknowledge the fact that uh, my life is less rich because of the people that I'm not talking to on a regular basis. Like the fact that I, that I'm merely, that I'm merely texting with people and I don't see their faces and I, I don't have that deeper connection. And what's even worse is when I am with people, I spend a lot of time with my face in my phone. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that's detrimental to my life. You are correct in that feeling. <laughs> I, 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 I back that up, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, it's odd. Um, I say all the time that Noam Chomsky uh, once said that it's we don't yet know if human being human beings are actually a viable species, <laughs> <laughs> and and this is one of the reasons we're kind of self destructive. Right. So here's this thing which is really good for us. I kind of can't even begin to tell you how good it is for you. It every conversation that you have almost is good for you. The only two types of conversations that we don't take an emotional and neurological boost from are those that are hostile or those in which we're getting uh, advice or help. <laughs> we don't, we really don't like unsolicited advice. That's ironic. Um, yeah. Everything else is good for us. So, and yet we're, we're purposely avoiding it. So right now we have this, um, epidemic of loneliness and social isolation. And I will, and I will remind you that social isolation is as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah. And well, we talk yeah. about that on the show all the time. Yeah. So why are we purposely doing this? Mm -hmm. That it's a it's a really great question. It's one that I am still actively in touch with other researchers and helping to um, launch uh, experiments and research into to find the real answer for that. But you know, I think part of the reason we do that is because of fear. It, we have this remembered fear, maybe of a conversation that went wrong, or we just have an imaginative fear of how bad a conversation can go. And that prevents us from starting these conversations. And do you have any idea why conversations are so important for us? Is this, like, why do we need that? Why can't we just have arm's length relationships with people? We're just not designed for that. It's It's been a, a really short period of time, a blip on the historical timeline when we have even been able to communicate without seeing another person's face right. or hearing their voice. All of our bodies... Uh, our physiological systems, our our neurological systems are set up to read people's faces and especially listen to their voices. We hear information in people's voices that isn't even trackable at this point. There is an, an empathic bond that is created when you hear another person's voice um, that we can't replicate 
using any technology whatsoever. We are the most sophisticated communicators and collaborators on the planet. And here's another thing that they have found, which is that, for example, if you have a 10-minute conversation, even with a stranger, and it's and it's not hostile, you will per- then perform better on, on a whole host of cognitive tests. And so how did you get to this point where you were passionate enough to write a book? So, uh, you know, when I went to go give this TEDx talk, um, the prompt they gave me was think of a problem in the world and then tell us how to solve it. And um, a problem in our world right now is that we're not really talking to one another. And I happen to know how to solve that. I know how to solve it because this is what I've spent the past 20 years of my life doing and researching. Um, So, I mean, I think the, the passion comes from the fact that I see how many facets of our life are affected by this and how we're just leaning in further. I mean, we're just, we're just totally rejecting phone calls when they come in and texting back. And I mean, we're, we're making it worse. Yeah. I mean, I look at this thing. How many, how many times do we get frustrated when people ask for an in-person meeting and it could have been an email because we value our time so highly But I feel like what you're saying is we should reverse that. We should seek in-person communication as much as possible because it's better overall and and flip, not email when we could talk in person. Is that and yeah, and here's the biggest irony of it all. Email isn't even a time saver or more efficient. (laughs) In fact, it is notably less efficient. And in fact, Microsoft, which has done such some of the best research into uh, email, our use of email, calls it a time and productivity suck. It's not, yeah, it's not even more efficient. There is so much miscommunication associated with overuse of email. And and the average office worker spends at least a quarter of their day dealing with their inbox. Oh, that's definitely true. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. You're, there is there infor- okay. Think, imagine this: how many times has a friend called you, and mm-hmm. all they've said is hello, and you say, "What's wrong?" Right, right. right. Like you immediately you hear. Can tell. Yeah, that's how efficient the voice is. Mm-hmm. So even if your coworker wastes two or three minutes of your time talking about their kid's dance recital, it's still more efficient than the email. Because of all the extra information that you're gleaning via the vocal cues? Right. So you send an email, you think it's quite clear. And the reason you think it's quite clear is because you're the only person reading it. Right. (laughs) Right. If you were also reading the email in addition to sending it, it would be extremely clear. You would probably speak quite clearly to yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not you reading it. It's someone else reading it. And when we take this into the laboratory and actually try to test how well does this person think they understood what was communicated over email? It's not good at all. In fact, a complete stranger off the street is as good at detecting sarcasm in your email as your best friend Mm. and loved one. That's email. Yeah, it's just not clear communication. Yeah, I you're right. I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking about literally every miscue via email that I've had. In the, I mean, it's good at, at giving logistical information, and that's Correct. about it. 
Yeah. And attachments. You can send attachments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can you can send, uh, you know, the entire text of War and Peace through email quickly. Like that's very useful. Right. But in ter- terms of anything where you really need to be understood, email is, is going to let you down. The phone call is more impor- is more efficient. So are we seeing consequences of this like on mass across different corporations? Like you said, you looked at the research that Microsoft did. What are some of those consequences that we're seeing in the workplace? Well, let me tell you, the number one cause of project failure in corporations is miscommunication. And the number one cause currently of miscommunication is overuse of email. Wow. Yeah. What what about the benefit of having a written communication record to be able to go back and look at? Uh, logistically, that's fine. Um, in other words, email is quite good. Like I said, at sending attachments or really, really long documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also good at sending any kind of list. And by that, I mean delegating tasks, uh, setting agendas, things like that. Very, very good at that. Um, the, the, a list would also include like, say that you and I had a phone call and we worked a bunch of stuff out. And then I sent you an email saying, okay, here's what I heard. So a follow-up to make sure that everybody knew what their executables were? Yeah, and there's a record of it, right? Now, let's say that I send you that and you say, whoa, that's not what I said at all. Then I get you back on the phone and I say, okay, well, where did I get it wrong? So email can be a perfectly fine record, but in terms of anything that requires explanation or nuance, you need to hear their voice. So, okay. So how do we, is the, is the phone really the only solution or are some of these more adaptive text-based communicators like Slack, which allow you to add more emoji reactions, add a little more nuance to your text? Is that going to be a solution? No. <laughs> you, you need to hear the voice. Um, and, and, and I mean, and that's the thing. And, you know, we keep trying to make text as efficient and effective as voice to voice communication. And, you know, maybe in I've heard experts say that perhaps in five to ten thousand years, text might catch up five to ten thousand. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they're doing a lot with longevity research, so we may get to see it. But uh, I, I take vitamins every day, so we should be good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it. All right. Well, what's another big takeaway that you got? I mean, so text doesn't work. We need vocal communication. What are other mistakes that people are making in their in their communication experiences right now? So I would say that one of the biggest uh, is this exactly what you were ta- describing earlier. So one of the biggest things that prevents people from starting conversations is fear, right? You f- are afraid it's going to go bad. So I think one of the most empowering things that you can do is practice ending conversations, literally come up with things to say to politely end the conversation with a colleague or someone you just met on the train or wherever it is. What is it you're going to say? What's your excuse? Well, I got to get back to work. Well, I, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I need to answer some ease or whatever it is, practice them, have them ready because it might allay your fear of, of being stuck in a conversation you can't get out of. I found that really prevents a lot of people. Well, yeah, we, there's a guy, I'm not going to bring him up, right? I'm not going to be specific about him. But there's a guy at our office who literally will stop you and tell you stories from 20 years ago, and it's very hard to get out of it. And I and it makes people around our office shut their doors when they need to do real serious work, and that cuts down on the communication. So I guess w- practice being rude? 
No, I don't think you have to be rude at all. Has anyone gone up to him and say, hey, every time I talk to you, I enjoy it, but it, I, I get sucked into the conversation. I would love um, to, you know, be able to step away. So... I'm laughing I mean, honestly, because that's a conversation that I'm afraid to have. Yeah. So it's kind of a me, chicken and an egg dilemma. Right. Okay. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been at a party or a dinner or something where later on you looked back and said, holy crap, I talked too much and you felt embarrassed? Yes. Okay. Would you at some point have appreciated your partner or friend putting your hand on your sleeve and say, hey, you're talking a little too much? Maybe in hindsight, but at the time I would be also embarrassed and probably feel a little sensitive and put off. Okay. But in hindsight, when things were calm, Mm -hmm. you would have said, hey, you know, do you want me to warn you in the future when that's happening? Do you <laughs> yeah. want me to say something? Right? Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, uh, I, my kid, I I have a terrible, used to have a terrible habit, I'm getting out of it now, of repeating stories that I liked. Right? Mm-hmm. And when I realized it, I told my son, if I'm ever doing that, just, you know, make the peace sign at me. And that's my sign that I'm telling one of those stories again. <laughs> well, and we it's been so helpful. You've had an exciting life. You've interviewed all these different people. You, and, and so I feel like you've got your bank of really great, impressive stories that you're always looking for a way to casually drop into conversation. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, <laughs> if you've heard them once, you don't want to hear it again. Right. Right. You know, if you happen to be one of those people who's met me more than once, you don't <laughs> want, you know. So, I mean, that's this is what I'm saying. Out of friendship to whomever this is. It, it, do it in hindsight. Do it not when he's currently talking to you. Go up to him and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I was sorry to cut you off the other day. Um, I feel like, you know, when we get involved in a conversation, you have so many great stories that it ends up delaying me a really long time. Um, and I'd love to be able to talk with you without, you know, losing 20 minutes. 20 um, minutes? That that would be amazing if it was only 20 minutes. Holy cow, how long does he talk? <laughs> A while, a while. It can be, it can, it can take a while. Uh, you in your book talk about how being smart can actually be a detriment to uh, nonverbal communication. Yeah, and actually verbal communication also. It's we've just seen um, that the smarter, the higher your IQ goes, the more education that you have, the the worse you are. At conversation, and the main reason for this is, well, there's a couple reasons for this. First of all, you know a lot, so uh, you're more likely to give unsolicited advice, which is pretty much always a mistake. Um, you're more likely to talk than to listen because you have a lot of things to say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that you you aren't listening, and you you usually don't listen because a you're repl- you're preparing your smart comment in mm-hmm. response mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of listening to them and B, a lot of smart people assume they know what the other person's going to say. Uh, they think they've heard it all before. You know, interestingly enough, when we've tested it, they've, they found out that, uh, millennials are better listeners than baby boomers, for example. Really? Yeah. And it's for the same reason that, you know, the, the baby boomers feel like they've heard it all before. They're just, instead of listening, they're doing what Stephen, Stephen Covey says, which is they're listening not to understand, but to reply. Right. And then, and millennials are, are better than that, are better at that because we haven't seen as much. I, I, uh, who, I don't really know the other end of that. Why are millennials are still listening? Because if you believe the stereotypes, they're staring at their phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they are in fact, better listeners, meaning that they are understanding more of what they hear and they're retaining more of it. 
And how much is this costing us? Like, how much, how much of an impact is this having on our actual lives? Like, I understand that there's a psychological component, but some of us are fine being miserable as long as we can afford a mortgage. What is this doing to our, house, to our lives? Well, it's doing a lot. I mean, I think it's the the source of of most of our political discord, mm. which you can you, you I'm, if you want to put a price tag on it, I'm sure it would be in the trillions. So, um, like also, Twitter is the big is what you're is what you're talking about when when you say political discord, and obviously like Facebook, the echo chamber. I, I mean, what's happening in D.C. I mean, the fact that our politicians at one point used to uh, debate each other on the the House and the Senate floor and then go to each other's anniversary parties and barbecues Mm -hmm. and hang out. They don't do that anymore. So they're seeing each other tribally as though they're at war. They're not seeing each other as human beings. And that is how we are all seeing. And it's not just in the U.S. either. I mean, you see this all over, all through, all over Europe. You see it certainly in uh, South America and places like Venezuela. You see it in Europe with the migrant crisis and in, in the U.K. with Brexit. Um, as long as we begin to not see each other as human beings, we are not going to care what happens to the other people. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. Um, also just in terms of the costs of healthcare, this is how detrimental loneliness is. Okay. Loneliness damages your internal organs. They've done studies, long-term longitudinal studies in which they have followed people around. And by taking note of how many confidants, like actually close friends people have, they can predict whether that person will be alive in 10 years. Wow. That's how important social interaction is to a homo sapien. It is crucial. And think about it another way, right? Um, Think about it if you were a zoologist and you were trying to find the perfect enclosure for a human being. Would you put that human being alone? Well, obviously obviously not, according to you. (laughs) Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. We go crazy when we're alone. I mean, you've probably also heard some of the statistics about the effects of someone in solitary confinement. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's not good for us. And right. and we're we're literally putting ourselves in solitary confinement. And since I mentioned millennials, there's nothing wrong with millennials. Millennials are as adept at making friends, as skilled at conversation as any other uh, age. But here's the difference. The millennials and uh, iGen, the generation that comes after, mm-hmm. are the most likely to believe that sitting on their couch texting back and forth is as social as actually going out and hanging out with friends. That's the mistake of the millennial generation. It's patently untrue. It's ridiculously untrue. But many millennials believe that. So, I mean... And- I happen to believe that because of Facebook and Instagram, I don't go to my high school reunions anymore because I'm seeing what those people are up to on a day to day basis. You're saying I should I should just go. Yeah. Yeah. Take whatever opportunity you have to see people's actual faces mm-hmm. and hear their voices. You know, let me put it another way. There's this great research that's going on at Princeton into a, a phenomenon called neural coupling. So basically, um, they for, for one of the experiments, and it's been replicated a number of times, they brought in a woman and they had her tell a personal story. And in this particular case, she told the story of her disastrous senior high school prom. 
And then was this woman they... named Carrie by any chance? <laughs> no, it was not that kind of disaster. So then they brought in a whole bunch of other people. Everybody was hooked up to an fMRI and functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. And they had those people listen to her telling her story. What they found was that when these people were actually focusing on her story, their brain waves began to move in exact sync with hers. Wow. Yeah. And in some case, uh, the sync was so exact that the listener's brain waves anticipated changes in the speakers by a fraction of a second. We don't know how that works. We don't know why that works. It's pretty much as close to magic as you can scientifically track. Right. right. It's mind meld, right? Yeah. Literally. But, yeah. Qu- quite literally. Like you'd expect to see that in an episode of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. But that's what what is possible when a set of human ears hears a human voice. Mm-hmm. That is our evolutionary biological birthright. It's what we do best. So what and about I, what about people who consider themselves loners or who go and want to be hermits? And and sometimes that sounds really appealing, like this idea of living in the woods by myself, meditating, reading. Uh, it, are are they lying to themselves? Am I lying yes. to myself when I think that sounds good? Yes, TLDR. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, oh, you know, for, less than, for some less people t- that don't speak text, TLDR stands for too long, didn't read. It's the it's the abbreviation <laughs> of a very long. If you, if you if somebody writes three paragraphs and you want the one sentence response, this is the one sentence uh, summary. Right, and TLDR I'm using it, means. obviously. Just Ironically. Um, right. <laughs> so listen, everybody, for, everyone thinks they're uh, an introvert. The truth is almost nobody is an introvert. Okay, fewer than 25% of the population qualifies as actually introverted. Wow. Most people are either an extrovert or an ambivert. Meaning that you're fine either way. You're you're okay sitting at home by yourself. You're okay at a party for whatever length of time. You know, you're pretty much can adapt to whatever situation that you're in. Would you like that cabin in the woods after, I don't know, a week? Probably not. You would be looking for a, a, a strong cell signal so you could get in touch with people. Um, I, I highly encourage you to go do it. Go sit in a place with no Wi-Fi connection. And see how long you last. Just as a as a, That's a all method of self that. experimentation to see how yeah. truly unintroverted we really are. Correct. You see how long it is before you want to go talk to somebody, or go crazy like in a Stephen King novel. Um, we are we are not loners. The, the 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 myth of the lonely genius is exactly that. It's it's not true. Even Thoreau had plenty of visitors at Walden Pond. Well, yeah, it's in the book. Yeah, he talks Lot, about going and walking to other people's them. farms. Yeah, all the time. So we are. That's not what we're designed to do. Um, it's still a fairly open question as to why we're doing it. Here's my theory as to why. Right. I think that for the vast majority of human history, we have basically been restricted to relatively small groups of people. It's only really been since the industrial age that people began to move into city places where they were surrounded by huge numbers. And, you know, Robin Dunbar famously figured out that the, the, the largest number of people we can really care about and keep track of is 150. Wow. Right. 
So that's yeah. as big as your wedding should ever be, everybody. Never more than 150 people. Right. So so I think that we have been experiencing because we're surrounded by so much because media keeps us in contact. You know, I have thousands of Facebook friends, right? Actually, mm -hmm. I just deactivated my Facebook account, so I have zero. But I did have <laughs> thousands of Facebook friends, right? I think it's overload. I don't think we are designed to uh, care about and keep track of these this large a number of people mm. on a daily basis. And I think our, our desire to isolate ourselves is simply overload. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll back that up by saying one of the one of my favorite lonely loner experiences is to walk through New York City where there are tons of people around but nobody I know, and it's almost more isolating than a walk in the woods where if you come across another person, you sort of feel obligated to say hi. Right, exactly. Although if you say hi, you'll probably be happier, your brain will work better, <laughs> no, <I laughs> and you'll get an emotional boost. <laughs> I'm talking about scratching yeah. that, yeah, that mild exactly right. introvert itch. I happen to love that feeling of walking around a city full of people, but also being alone. Absolutely. I think that at this point we are we are overloaded by too many inputs mm -hmm. of, of people we're supposed to care about. Mm -hmm. And I think the solution to that is to get back to those days when we actually knew a group of people well. Right. And had part cocktail parties at our houses and neighborhood barbecues and actually had a group of confidants. You know, in 1985, the average American had three or four people they they classed as confidants. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. At, as of today, uh, that's down to a little less than two. And in fact, 25% of Americans say they don't have any, anyone they would class as a confidant. That's incredibly bad for you. Right. Um, and I think it's making us sick. Sick in a, in a mental way or sick in a physical way? Both. Social isolation is damages your internal organs. Yeah, like it you damages said. your cognition. If you're on, if you're lonely, you will perform worse on tests. Mm. Your brain starts stops functioning well. Now, is this why you deleted your Facebook? I mean, is it because you felt like you were having that that fake saccharine connection and none of the real connections? Yeah, I, and I also just thought it was just sucking up too much time on something that was not worth the time. I mean, frankly, the, the, the drawing line for me was when I found out Facebook was negotiating selling my banking information. But even before then, it's just it's just too much time. I would rather focus on uh, the, the people that are, are truly an important part of my life. And frankly, too many of my friends are relying on that to get in touch with me. Now, if they want to get in touch with me, they got to use the phone. And, and and call you and have that actual voice communication that you're talking about being so missed. Exactly. Exactly right. And they can email me, but I'm the I'm the type of jerk that if you email me back and forth after three of those exchanges, I say, hey, uh, let's stop this and get on the phone. I mean, we think again, like you said, I think of email as the faster communication. But to your point, when you send nine clarifying emails back and forth, <laughs> It could have been a two-minute conversation that get that gave us all the data we needed. Yeah, and that's actually been tracked through research. I'll tell you an example from my own life. I was working with a company where I was going to be a consultant, and uh, my book publisher was concerned about how that would, you know, work with the the PR 
for the book. Mm -hmm. And so the first book. And so they started emailing back and forth. Now we counted over 150 emails passed back and forth before I finally said, this is ridiculous. Get on the phone. And they settled the entire thing in about 15 minutes. That's After incredible. 150 some emails back and forth over two month time period. I mean, come on. I mean, there's your case study right there. Yeah, from exactly. Your own yeah, exactly. Okay. And I bet oh, you most people can come up with a story like that yeah. without thinking all that hard. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. Okay. So what would you say for those of us, and I'm one of them, that are addicted to text-based communication, what is the first step we can all take to starting to break these mental and physical chains we've put on ourselves? So you need to ask yourself, what's a reasonable amount of time to spend on your phone? Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I would say I spend an unreasonable amount of time on my right. phone. So think about this for a moment. How many hours per day do you think it is reasonable to spend on your phone? Is it an hour? Two hours? Three? Are you so, asking me literally to answer that question? Because yeah. Answer well, that question. Well, because I spend, uh, I, you know, I spend between five and six hours on my phone a day. And that's actually below average for a lot of people for what the world is. I have that... Um, the new operating system on the on the iPhone will tell you what you're doing on your phone all day long, how much time you're spending, what apps you're using, etc. Yeah. And that's been really helpful because by having the data, I can see, oh my gosh, I spent two hours on Instagram yesterday, and that is the dumbest way to spend two hours. As I'm just scratching this weird itch. So because I've I've gotten the data in my head, I've started limiting my Instagram time to 30 minutes a day. And that actually has lowered my overall time from seven-ish hours to under five hours when I do that, um, which is ridiculous to say out loud. So I would it say is. I would say if I'm not traveling and having to use my phone to work and to send emails back and forth, again, I know emails are not good communication, I would say no more than three hours on my phone a day would be reasonable. And that even seems high. Yeah, it seems high to me too, especially when you think you're you're awake for what fifteen hours a day, sixteen. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, and and then you know how much that time is spent doing each thing. So the first thing that I did was sort of block out my time. How much time am I spending eating? How much time am I spending writing? You certainly don't want to have your phone near you or your email open while you're trying to focus on something else because we found that if you're the type of person who leaves your email client open at all times on your desktop, it drops Guilty. your IQ it drops your IQ by 10 to 12 points. Yes. So um, you have, that's the first thing is you have to decide what's reasonable and, and start taking breaks from it. Start walking away from your phone, even if it's only for 30 minutes where you take a walk or go to dinner without your phone. Start to remember what it feels like to not have your phone. Yeah. Right. You know where the, the grocery store is. You don't have to take your phone with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So try, try it out. Start trying to break that addiction. I mean, the truth of it is that many people, if not most people in the Western world, are quite literally addicted to their cell phones. They oh, yeah. have become so addicted to that dopamine rush the slot machine model that the software engineers knew they were creating when they designed that software that breaking that addiction is going to be hard. So I'd start small. Just take some start taking some small breaks. 
I used to I used to go for runs without my phone. It was delightful. I would just jog without a phone. And now I feel like I can't jog without my phone because I can't track my mileage and then post it so that everybody can see it. <laughs> like I've I've really upended the the addiction model there. Yeah, why why does it. everyone need to see it? Because then it doesn't count if nobody sees it. <laughs> <laughs> You, I mean, if you're I, hearing yourself, right? No, I am. That's why I'm laughing. Like, if the other people in my marathon training group don't know that I put in eight miles today, did I actually run eight miles? And obviously, yeah. yes, I did. But it's, it, it, I just feel, I, I still feel that connection, that need for it, even though saying it makes me realize what a ridiculous human being I am. It, well, and we're all there with you. It's not just you, obviously. I, I know. Yeah. And we, we, that's the first thing is we just got to figure it out. And the other thing I would say is if you're talking to someone, don't put your cell phone down, put it away. Yeah. You, you know, they did a, a, the, the cell phone, the visual cell phone is deeply distracting to your brain mm. in the same way that the email client is. But not only that, they did an experiment in which they had, you know, a whole bunch of strangers come in and talk to each other for 10 minutes at a time. And in half of those conversations, they simply set a cell phone down on the table. It belonged to neither person. It never made any oh noise. Gosh. But it turned out that when they came out, the people who spoke to, to each other with a cell phone visible Mm-hmm. were 60 to 70 percent to say more likely to say the other person was unlikable untrustworthy and wow. unempathetic. wow wow yeah. this is terrible so put it away yeah i'm just thinking about all of these interactions that i've had where the cell phone is just either sitting on the table yeah. or i mean and, and it's making me rethink a lot about my life that's crazy okay <laughs> what do we do i mean you're a parent i'm a parent uh if I'm out, I feel the need to have my phone with me so that the babysitter or, or whoever can get in touch with me if, you know, and, and if they need to. So, like, I don't fully turn my phone off at the movies even. Right. So all that I do is I put it on do not disturb and then I go in there and I leave exceptions. Right. You can make an exception so that only one particular person can call you. I have that. I just don't use it. I mean, I'm admitting yeah, I, to you my own failures, and, and you're laughing at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying it's very useful. That's why yeah. it's there. Yeah. Um, so simply put it on do not disturb. And if the babysitter needs to call you, then they can call you. Um, or you can simply do what everybody did up until 15 years ago, which was designate another person, a neighbor or a friend or somebody else who's going to take that call Uh while you go off and have a, a phone-free evening. Right. I mean, remember, we raised children for a really long time uh, without phones, yeah, cell phones. Yeah, we found other ways around that. You're and right. You, you and I were both were raised without that. Even as a millennial, yeah. you weren't born when iPhones were around. They've only been around since 2007. Yeah, that's so, crazy to think about. But you're absolutely right. I, you know, my parents when they left. They wrote a phone number down where they could be reached, and when yeah. they weren't at that exact spot, they weren't reachable. Yeah. Or my mom would put down the neighbor's number and say, if something happens, call a neighbor. They're home. Yeah. Okay, so that's an area of our life that we have our own authority over. In our parenting, yes. we can we can try to break that free. But what about those of us that work for firms 
where email response time is uh, is a metric that you're judged by. In other words, if I don't reply to an email within half an hour, it it looks it reflects poorly on me within my organization. How how do we start to combat that? So if that's the case, um, I want to talk to your CEO um, <laughs> and put the statistics before them. But right. if that is the case, then all I would say is every half hour, open your email and set aside however many minutes of each half hour to deal with email and then close it out and get back to your other work. Right. I mean, I do every Monday for me is an untouchable day, um, which I've, I've blogged about how to do this. So on Mondays, I am disconnected. That's amazing. Yeah, I do not look at social media. My phone is on do not disturb except for my son. Um, And if you try to email me, it says I'm not looking at email today. If it's an emergency, call me. So I've been doing that for months, at least six months, and there hasn't been an emergency yet. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's, you know, you always think there's going to be an emergency. There isn't. Right. Right. It's well, it, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, how often is there really, unless you are an emergency physician, in which case you have your on duty time and your off duty time, how often are you actually getting phone calls or emails that need, I mean, really need immediate response? And in the media business, it's hard because that phone call could be the gig that you're waiting on. You know, it's, it's, there's a weird gig mentality to the media business that's always been there. So you kind of always feel like you should be there because you don't want to lose work. But I also feel like the reality is it's very infrequent. We just feel the need to be on call all the time. Like yeah, and, and, yeah. And look, I'm in the media. I get phone calls from the BBC saying, hey, can you, you come on at 5 a.m. to talk about Brett Kavanaugh? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I get these phone calls from NPR saying so-and-so is sick. Can you come host today? Um, I still get them. <laughs> I, I haven't had any trouble with people reaching me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, that's just if if there's an emergency, people can call me. Right. It's So it's it, the email that you're blocking off, not the full everything else. I don't get text messages. I get phone calls only. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. and that's what you set up for your Mondays is just phone that's calls. That's my Monday, just phone calls. That's it. Maybe we it's... should go back to landlines. Everybody should have a landline and turn their mobiles off. <laughs> uh, maybe. I, I mean, mean that's, that's I, I have I'm a here. landline. I don't, I mean, I I think that the mobile is fine. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with technology. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I really don't. Technology is completely natural. We Human beings have been using tools since at least the Stone Age. And it's so natural for us that if you pick up a screwdriver, your brain treats that tool like an extension of your arm. Yeah. That's how natural that is in your hand. The problem is, is that when you finish putting the book ta- bookcase together, you put the screwdriver down. Right. We right. are designed to be task-based. Right. We're not designed to be sitting there holding it and using it as an extension of our brains all the time. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So you've you've empowered me, or you've embarrassed me to the point where I feel like I have to do this stuff. And I I, I really the idea of setting aside a day with no technology. I like the I cannot tell you the conflicting emotions that are roiling inside <laughs> of me right now. Part of me is insanely jealous of you. Another part of me is like, oh, I want that so badly. And then there's like a little golem inside of me that's like, no, I have to hold my precious. 
no matter what happens. And I feel all of it. And it basically, it just makes me, it makes me want to curl into the fetal position and cry right now. I mean, I get it. I, I, I had trouble when I first started doing the untouchable day, I ended up cheating. Um, every once in a while I would just out of habit go and, and check my email. That's why I now use boomerang to put my inbox on pause. Um, Mm. I, I would, you know, just out of habit, open up Twitter or whatever it was. It took me quite some time, but that's part of why I knew I was addicted. Yeah. No, look, I, I, I am with you. I have made the choice. I deleted the Facebook app from my phone. Um, I delete. It's harder with Instagram because you can't check Instagram online on your computer. So I have deleted the Instagram app on and off from my phone and then put it back on to to check in with people. But what I found is even when those social media apps are off my phone, there is a period of time that can last over a week where I go and mindlessly, before my brain even realizes (laughs) it, go to check the app. And when it's not there, all of a sudden my my conscious brain comes forward and is like, oh, right, it's not there. What are you doing? And it's and I keep saying embarrassing, but it's kind of it's eye opening to realize just how passively addicted I am to this stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, if it makes you feel any better, it's all of us. Yeah. In it the Western world, at better. least. Just yeah. I mean, this is our struggle of mm-hmm. our age. Um, but, you know, like I said, we have to either fix it or be self-destructive. Yeah. I mean, this is the moment at this point when we, we need to reckon. You know, here's the thing. We seem to accept that biology and evolution have control over the behavior of other animals, right? Right. Like we have no trouble accepting that in horses or dogs. Right. right. Um, but we need to realize that that's true of us also. Right. And so evolutionarily and biologically, we need face-to-face and voice-to-voice interaction with mm-hmm. other human beings, Obviously. truly yeah. meaningful relationships. Yeah. And we're just not getting it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I feel challenged. I hope everybody else here feels challenged. Uh, we are we are running towards the end of the amount of time that, that we asked you to block off for us. And, and I'm assuming that you treat all aspects of your schedule as tightly as you treat your <laughs> your uh, nonverbal communication schedule, I would like I, to end though with your one of your favorite stories that you always like to repeat and that your son is supposed to tell you not to. None of us has heard it, so would you mind telling us one of your favorite stories? <laughs> well, let me think. Well, I do like you know the person that I I um have interviewed more times than any other in my career is uh, the novelist Salman Rushdie. Oh wow. Yeah, I just love talking to him. He's just one of the most naturally funny people. He doesn't tell jokes. Speaking He's of isolation. Funny. Yeah, but he had he has a huge circle of friends. Uh, but in any case, that's how he survived that, right? Like he stayed with people who cared about him. But in any case, I really like talking to Salman Rushdie. And at the last time I spoke with him about his most recent novel, I said to him, I said, you know... <laughs> I've talked, I've interviewed you more than anyone else in my career. And he said, well, Celeste, people will talk. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one of my favorite stories. He he had a great uh, arc on on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. It was really fun. All right. Celeste Tedley, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. And I don't know about everybody else, but I feel challenged to put down my phone every once in a while. Oh, good. I'm so glad. (laughs)
Thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, want to thank our guest, Celeste Headley. There is a link to her website, plus a link to where you can buy the book in the show notes. Also, I have her Twitter account in the show notes. Celeste Headley is her name. You can look her up on Twitter. Even though we talked about the ills of social media and the ills of, uh, of how we speak in text or how we communicate via text, she's still on Twitter. You can follow her there if you want to follow up with her. Uh, thank you again, Celeste, for being on the show. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like Intelligence for Life, the podcast, go ahead and rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out a lot. Tell us, uh, you know, t- tell your friends, tell us what you think of the show. Also, find us on social media. John is at John Tesh on Twitter, Facebook.com slash John Tesh, where we spend most of our time. And then uh, at John Tesh underscore IFYL on Instagram. You can follow up with us there, or you can hit up me. And tell me what guests I should have on the podcast at Gib Gerard, G-I-B-G-E-R-A-R-D, on Twitter, at Gib Gerard on Instagram, and Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. I try to respond to pretty much everything that comes in, especially if it's a pointed question. So go ahead and hit me up there, and I will try to answer your questions as quickly as I can. Uh, once again, if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, Tesh.com is a great place to do it, plus a lot of our stories that we have on the radio show. Uh, also, um, uh, TeshMusic.com. If you want to come see us live in Florida, and then we got a couple of dates in 2019 that you can check out right there at teshmusic.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. We genuinely appreciate it. You are the reason we do this. So, uh, you know, thanks. <laughs>